Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 82. It's March 31st. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we're going to talk about some upcoming adjustments to our rankings as the calendar flips to April. We're going to answer a lot of questions. We had a question about the baseball. We had a question about ranking teams for their ability to develop talent. We'll talk about a few March movers as well. You know, how's it going for you on this Tuesday? Um, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. I think it's interesting for people like you and I that work from home and have to watch the rest of the family get up to speed. <laughs> mm. uh, and, uh, I think it's been particularly hard for my wife, uh, particularly because she said like, you know, in the office, she used to get annoyed that people would come by and ask her questions all the time when she's trying to work. But now those people have to schedule a Zoom meeting to ask the question. So everything is everything's on a meeting. And so everything's even longer and she just has meetings all day. So I could I can imagine that. And then now we're scheduling meetings with our friends, Zoom meetings with our friends just to see them. So um things are getting bizarre and uh we're only two weeks in and it looks like we're gonna have another four weeks, so um, I'm just hopeful that near the end of April we start getting some better news, um, and the, the, this all hinges on a date. We we need like something to look forward to. The thing that makes it so difficult, I think, is that we're just you know hanging out, just like waiting. Yeah, we're in a holding pattern that feels indefinite right now, even though eventually it will end. And I think it's particularly challenging if you live in a place that has bad winters because if you're like me you're listening to baseball in early march when spring training games begin and it's sort of like bob Euchre, at least in wisconsin when he starts popping up on the radio at the beginning of the month he moves the snow away and the winter away like he clears it away like baseball makes winter end and baseball not starting has made it feel like winter hasn't ended yet um, it is a little bit warmer out so we've been able to get outside just a little and you know walk the dog and get her over to the park and everything but that sort of i don't know life calendar just being completely erased for a while is disorienting and, and people are all are feeling that uh, and it is strange to to schedule meetings with your friends using the same tools you use at work it it like blurs the lines between home and work but um yeah, everyone's just kind of figuring things out. I mean, my wife uh, usually works in a lab, and she's now working in the same room where I record the podcast. So she can hear <laughs> one side of a podcast when she's in the room and I'm recording. Um, it's it's just little things like that. But I, I still I still feel like we're lucky in in the grand scheme of things. You know, having enough space where we can do this. You know, having opportunities to continue our work. It's just, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a strange couple of weeks and, and April is going to be probably even more strange than March. I did hear, I was listening to the radio this morning. I had made my weekly supply run and I threw NPR on for a little while. And I thought I heard that the current modeling for peaking of the coronavirus is around April 26th or 27th. I think they had a Wisconsin date and a nationwide date and they were pretty close together. Uh, so that kind of gives us an idea of how things are tracking that way. And now it could move up depending on how people are handling social distancing and you know, other 
preventative measures, but it was really the first time I'd heard an actual date put out there for that to take place. And that just made me think, okay, like this is, this is the way things are going to be for at least another month. But at least I, I know we have something that we're looking at as a possible beginning of the end part. Yeah. I think we'll have some clarity in, in May. That's I'm hoping for some clarity in May. That's just, it's just clarity that we need. And, uh, you know, there, uh, there are, just little glimpses of hopes in the numbers. If you look at them, I mean, we're, we're looking for is the derivative uh, to change the derivative of the curve. Like it's going to, if you look at cumulative numbers, it's going to go up because you're going to keep adding, but we just want to add at a slower rate. And that, that'll mean that we, that we've accomplished something now, you know, how you open up after that and when, and how much you were willing to risk another spike uh, is, is a question of, you know, hospital capacity and, um, uh, I guess the need for a functioning economy and all sorts of different questions that, you know, people stand on different sides of those, of those questions. But when you look at the derivatives of certain curves, um, New York just had like a day or two of, um, of a softening, basically a flattening, as people might explain, as people might know, and then um, Northern California, uh, we were one of the first to socially distance. That's why I'm on day, uh, day. Oh God, <laughs> you've lost count. No, I almost. Uh, no, I'm keeping count. Uh, I'm on day 16, um, and I know from uh, pals like uh, Jason Collette and uh, Paul Spore. Uh, in in uh, Texas and uh, North Carolina, respectively, that they're on uh, sort of day two of uh, of a specific shelter in place order, not necessarily what what they have done uh, personally. And so, um, you know, we uh, have one of the flattest curves in America, in Northern California. So, uh, California as a whole doesn't look as good, but Northern California, I think, was out in front on this and. Um, um, so it, uh, it hasn't gotten that bad here. I have noticed a field hospital was built on Stanford campus on, on my last run. I noticed it. Um, we are trying to do a lot of the same things that New York is doing because we have the same population base, but we don't have necessarily the same type of problem. Right. That's, uh, it's encouraging to hear that, uh, things at least in Northern California, especially have been progressing in a, in a way that seems to be overall like much better than expected. Um, but again, you see things that are different in, uh, in different places. Like I, I was out on, on Sunday just for a little while. I had to drop some, some boxes off. Um, and I saw like Home Depot was packed and just thought like, what are you, what are you all doing? Like I, you, you're all going to get new kitchen backsplashes together. Like why, why are we doing this? Like the, it just doesn't. It doesn't make sense. So I, I hope, I hope the message is still being received where it needs to be heard. Um, but I'm definitely encouraged to, by what you're saying uh, is happening around you. If you're on a beach in Florida, please go home. <laughs> please, 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 please go home. I saw this uh, thing on. Uh, it was like a animation of cell phones on one Florida beach. And it just it just uh, grouped uh, uh, a bunch of cell phones on a beach in Florida, and then showed where they went. 
oh, jeez. And I was like, ah, uh, and like immediately washed my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, that's actually part of the ritual now in the supply runs. When I come back from the store, I take the phone out of the case and break it all down, and wipe it all out with Clorox wipes yeah. and try to just... Just make sure that like I didn't accidentally grab the phone to double check something while I was at the store after I touched something. You just you just don't know. Um, who's the um, who's the uh, uh, the the famous old billionaire that uh, that Howard something? He was like a uh, he was like a germaphobe. Uh, famous old. Billionaire, yeah. germaphobe. See what that brings up. Are you asking Google? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm consulting the internet. Uh, <laughs> famous germaphobes. There's a story from New Hampshire Public Radio. I may have to listen to that later. <laughs> Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. We're all Howard Hughes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, wow, it continues that, to, uh, to that work. reference is going to capture people by the tens. <laughs> yeah, it really will. Uh, all right, we'll move away from coronavirus talk. I think yeah. There are plenty of other places to to get that, but glad to hear things are are still going as well as they can be uh, on your end. Uh, let's talk about some players who have moved a bit in March, and really, it's it's more like players that we are about to move coming out of March. Uh, we can look at NFBC ADP as well. I have opened that up from March fifteenth to March thirty first. Uh, of course, we had some major injuries that happened over the course of the month. Luis Severino, Chris Sale, more recently Noah Syndergaard, all undergoing Tommy John surgery. So that pulls some some players down. And I think the you know, the prevailing thought has been that the innings limited starting pitchers are getting a bump. And I saw a draft board uh, from our colleague Matt Mudika that was. Definitely a reflection of how at least the high stakes arena is currently viewing uh, Jesus Lazardo. And in a 15 team draft that was playing out at the end of last week, Lazardo was a fifth round pick. It's the earliest I've seen him go. His min pick in March, in the second half of March, was 68. Uh, so that just kind of gives us a sense of okay, this is this is the jump for for a guy like that. We've talked about Julio Urias as being slightly more. Uh, of a discounted option who does a lot of the same things. He went in the eighth round of that same draft. I don't know why there's a gap between those two guys of three rounds right now, but I really don't expect that to last. You know, I think the more people look at both of those guys, like the closer they're going to get in ADP. I have them right next to each other. 38, 39 overall. Um, I could see pushing them um, ahead of them are some boring vets like Kyle Hendricks and Hunjin Rue. Um, Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, Nelson Lamette, Matthew Boyd, Mike Miner. I guess I could I could push them ahead of all of those if I was really being aggressive and get them all the way up to sort of Zach Gallon, Zach Wheeler territory at the back end of the top thirty. Um, but once you get above that, you've got like Soroka, Giolito, Carrasco, Montas. I just just people I think. Um, you know, that, uh, I think, I think they're a little bit better. I don't know. Montas versus Lazardo was a very good question I had on a show where I made an appearance. Who do you think is going to get more innings? Yeah, that was a good question. That was the live stream we did with, uh, yeah. Vlad Settler over at Fantasy Guru, uh, last Friday. It's still up, by the way. Check out Vlad on Twitter at Roto Gut. I think Eno and I both shared the link at some point in the last few days as well, but that was a, a fun, a fun stream. Uh, I think more innings 
are still probably still coming from Frankie Montas. Also, I think it's important, I think, more innings per appearance. That's where I think the difference comes in, right? Like I, yeah. I think the usage in terms of being a starter from day one of whenever the season begins through the end of the year, that's a level playing field. It's Lizardo's often going to go five and probably not more than six, whereas Montes won't have a restrictions. I don't think he's gone six in his career in the major leagues. I mean, it's a short short career, but yeah, I, do, I just he's more of like a high effort, high pitch count uh, guy that they have to watch. Um, I guess Urias is not that to the same extent. However, Urias's uh, injury was more substantial. I guess that's the three rounds. Uh, coming back from a shoulder from a shoulder situation is not good. And though he's shown himself to be healthy since, it's still it's still there. It's still a, a truth, you know. Yeah, if you go back to early 2019, we did see when he was starting. Urias got six innings in against the Brewers back on April 18th. Nine strikeouts, six scoreless, one hit. Yeah, he was he was shoving that day. Yeah. Um, had a five-inning start against the Brewers six days before that. Had a five-inning start against the Giants in his first start of last season. And then was pretty much in the bullpen for most of the rest of the season. And the starts he did make later in the year were two, three-inning, just quick outings. So... Um, e- even there, yeah, and and wins are harder and harder to get to get go by. And I hate to chase wins, but you know this is uh, it, it's another thing you have to think about on some extent. And I wouldn't necessarily, um, I wouldn't necessarily use that as a big demarker. But like if you're talking about uh, you know Montas and Carrasco, Carrasco versus Urias and Lizardo, I think a little bit more likely to take the guys who I think might be able to go pitch deeper into the games and get wins. I think the the guy that I'm I'm still pretty excited about is James Paxton. I've got him a few places. I took him in the Tout Wars auction a couple of weeks ago. He won't have, at least I don't think, within start any sort of innings restriction as long as he's fully recovered from his injury when things ramp up again. You know, he kind of stands out to me in the 100 to 140 range ADP wise as a pitcher who doesn't really have any start-by-start concerns. And the skills are really solid. We love the run support. We love the bullpen. And I, I still think there's a another level for Paxton to reach as a member of the Yankees. I, I think he can he can still turn in a season better than you know, better than what we saw last year, 382 and, and 128 for the ratios. Like the 128 whip just doesn't seem right to me. I think he can he could beat that number in particular. Yeah, you know, it's been <laughs> we've been driving for so long because the baseball season was supposed to start early this year, and it was crazy. But like spring training started like February twenty fourth or something, so I had drafts in February, and I remember the the the, the roller coaster that we've been on. Like Paxton sort of represents that thing <laughs> because there was like there were drafts where I took him when he was healthy. And I was like, nice, Paxton. And then <laughs> and then he got hurt, and I was like, God damn, Paxton, you know? <laughs> and then there was like a little bit of news before uh, everything went to, to crap that he was throwing again already. And I was like, yeah, Paxton, you know? 
<laughs> and, and now I'm like, hey, Paxton, sweet. <laughs> so I have I have a fair amount of shares because I uh, I believe in Paxton, and I also think that I think I've talked about this a lot. I just generally think that quality per inning is something I'd rather um, focus on than a ton of innings because there are so few people doing a ton of innings that I think the bar has been lowered in terms of what is a, uh, an acceptable number of innings to get from your top pitchers. So if I get one guy who hits 200 and then a couple guys who have 150, I feel like I have a pretty good basis for my, my squad. And if I think, if you ask me, do I think that Paxton in a, in a typical year can get to 150? Yeah, I think so. I'm now going to check his Pantographs page. <laughs> He's got to 150 and two thirds last year, 160 and a third in 2018, and that was those are the only two seasons of his career where he's got that many innings. He was at 136 back in 2017 and 121 back in 2016. Right, he's been injured so often, but but still two straight years of 150. I think he, yeah, I think he can do 150, but not not necessarily this year. God, we have to change all our. Well, we don't even know. We don't even know how many there are, so I can't even tell you. What, I, I have to. If you hear me say something like 150 or 200, I'm obviously talking about full season pace, and we're going to have to adjust all of those things by however many you know games we do get. It's still easier, I think, in general for people listening and for us analyzing players to pretend put the, put the numbers <laughs> on a full season, knowing that we're going to reduce them. Yeah, you know, if we if we started shortening up based on our guess as when the season's going to begin, that just it creates more confusion. So I, I think I think it's the right way to go. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state, all from the comfort of home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. So if you're struggling with ED, go to GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash rates for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. Is there something about the shape of production, though, that will favor certain players in terms of if you're talking about like an auction value or just fantasy value? Like if you think about it, like if this season was 10 games long, you would want to own maybe one of 20 starters and then you would want to have all the closers. Hmm. Right? Cause not sure. Like why why would you want that? Well, let's say season seven games long. Seven games long. You get one start. So you get one start out of your guy, most likely. Maybe two. I'm saying ten, so you okay. Ten. Ten in ten games you get two starts out of your guy. Out of your guy and out of your starter. And you might get three to five saves. Yeah. From your best closer. I mean, in, in a roto league, though, like it, theoretically, everybody else would have the same or a similar balance, right? So they'd they'd have the same opportunity. Well, I just generally think that, like, 
there's something about volume that accrues. Yeah, yeah. No, no. There's something here. So think about uh, strikeouts as a category, right? Strikeouts as a category favors starting pitchers, right? But if you're talking about two starts versus three to five appearances, um, let's say, uh, let's give them four appearances, uh, two per week. Or let's give it five. So five appearances from the from the from the uh, from the your closer, your closer in five appearances might get eight strikeouts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and your starter in two appearances might get ten to twelve. You get right? a typical starter, yeah. The high end guys maybe get a little more, but yeah, right. So the difference there is smaller than if you take that ten game stretch. And multiply it over and over and over again. You know what I'm saying? Right. So if you had a graph of fantasy value and you did it for ten game like started at at game ten and then went over the the graph of starter and reliever fantasy value, they'd have different slopes. They'd they'd start close to each other, and then they'd gradually drift away from each other. Wouldn't the main issue here be that even in a 10 game schedule the reliever opportunities to get the saves don't necessarily pop up evenly but you know the starting pitchers are going to take the ball and at least have those chances so that that workload is just still even in that smaller cluster that workload from the starters making two starts is more reliable than getting save chances Specifically, you, those relievers might get used, but they may not get used in save chances simply because of how those 10 games can play out. I still think that there's something to the fact that a part of a starter's value is bulk. And the shorter your season is, the less bulk he has to wield over the reliever, basically. And I think there's something there. And if if that's true... Then and then you throw in the asterisk of the fact that um, uh, there might be more injuries this year to starting pitchers who have a, a more precarious preparation schedule right now for the season. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the other thing that I'm I'm really kind of wondering about right now is if we had. If we had an in-season auction calculator from previous seasons that could give us snapshots of one month at a time, two months yeah. at a time, three months at a time, what would those numbers look like? I mean, I, w- would there be meaningful conclusions you could draw from the shape of the numbers, as you said, or would it just be mostly random? You know, like that's there's going to be more variance in a short season. That's the fundamental thing we've talked about from like a team standpoint where the mid-pack teams have an even greater chance of reaching the playoffs. You put the numbers out there for the Jays and uh, White Sox and a bunch of those teams, right? Like they're they're all more likely to make the playoffs in a shorter season than they were in a 162-game season. But yeah, how how does that really change the individual valuations of players who because of their ability to hit that higher workload ceiling, have a higher baseline value. Does it completely change them? Does it 
somewhat change them. Like I, I just I don't know how much to correct for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, and I don't, you know, for the life of me, I can't figure out anything meaningful when it comes to hitters. I mean, the, the closest I've come is like someone like Michael Conforto, who's coming back from an oblique strain, which is fairly simple. Just a question of, does it hurt? Don't do anything. As soon as it stops hurting, you can start doing stuff. Right. Um, it doesn't, didn't require surgery. Hopefully, uh, the one thing that would suck is if he did require surgery and he didn't know it because he's not, you know, going to a hospital right now. Um, but I can't otherwise uh, put my finger on something. But like one thing that's interesting that we had a question a while back, and I don't think it's on the docket today, was this idea that like, and, and uh, apologies for for not shouting out your name, but uh, uh, thank you for sending this idea, and I'm thinking about it, which is that we may play in front of no fans. And so I wonder if there's a class of player that will like that and a class of player that won't like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a question from splash Gordo. I I remember that coming in. Yeah. He had, he had kind of speculated there could be some, some groups, right? Yeah. Certain players who like the noise and certain guys who uh, don't, like the noise because they lose focus or it's it's one of those things like you you really i don't think you know until you see it but maybe there is a way if you know a player well and you know how they handle different circumstances maybe you can try and at least predict how it might impact them we don't have anything to fall back on to say oh this is what happened last time you know like we can at least look at 1995 and say, okay, when we're probably going to have like a 19 to 21 day spring training because that's what we did in 1995. But there's been one game played without fans that I can think of in like the history of baseball, Baltimore. Yeah, and I don't think that going into that one game is going to tell us much. You know? <laughs> no, no, that's yeah. Well, think of it this way though. I mean, players coming up. They've played in front of crowds that are huge. They've played in front of crowds that are non-existent. In in a lot of those games, early in their career especially, when they were being heavily scouted prior to being drafted, those were important games. The stakes were high on the individual level for a lot of those players, right? So I guess my, my snap reaction is to not think too much about it, even though I thought it was a really interesting question. Because I think... When you play rookie ball and you play at low A, I mean, I've been I've been to a game in Beloit in April before. There's like 20 people there. <laughs> you just you're just playing the game, and maybe it's different in a giant stadium that's empty because you're used to that place being full and you quickly adapted to the smaller, low level minor league park not having anybody in it. Uh, but I I think the players can adapt to this pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how we would identify the players that couldn't, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm looking at clutch and like, I, I'm like, okay, maybe clutch players could be players that need the, the noise, right? Number one in clutch last year was Matt Olson, who is just a doll, dude. Is just like the nicest dude ever. He is 
not about like needing to play in tons of fans in front of tons of fans. Like just, I know this, we're getting anecdotal here, but like we're, of course we're going to, because we're, there's no roadmap for this. And I just don't see Matt Olson. Now, when I go down a little bit, I see Bryce Harper as the ninth clutchest, you know, and it's possible to me that he needs the roar of the crowds just because, or that he desires it because of his personality of my interactions with him of, you can just see it. You can see that he's been surrounded by crowds his whole life. Basically he's a, he's like the LeBron James of baseball, basically in that we knew about him since he was like, he won a home run derby at 14, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that LeBron. Um, comp, yeah. It's not about what he's achieved, but it is about how he's been treated since he was a teenager. I think that yeah. holds up. But, uh, he was clutch last year. He was not clutch the year before he was average clutch the year before he was really clutch in 2016. He was one of the worst clutch players in 2015 clutch is just, I'm sorry, man. I I'm sorry if people believe in it. I think that, uh, there are people that have a slow heartbeat. Uh, I think that most of baseball has a slow heartbeat because I think if you are really jelly legged at, you know, facing, uh, you know, Justin Verlander, you're not going to last very long. Yeah, I kind of, I guess, I guess what I'm, what I was trying to maybe hint at with the idea of playing in empty stadiums, playing with high stakes when only a few important people are watching. I think the the path that brings you to become a major league baseball player puts you through a series of tests where you're kind of weeded out if you have yeah. problems with or without a crowd. That's yeah. That's kind of my hypothesis here. Yeah. 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 And and clutch just mathematically, clutch does not have a great relationship year to year. No, so it's noisy you, as F, as yes, uh, exactly. the scientists would so, say. So I don't think that there's going to be a lot of learned, a lot of learned, like going up and down this clutch list. I mean, uh, does does Charlie Blackman, thirteenth in clutch, does he need the fans? Kevin Newman, I mean, Kevin Newman is like a twenty six year old <laughs> nobody, you know. Um, he probably enjoyed having a lot of fans for the first time as a big league player last year. Yeah, but is that the same thing as if he's if he starts slumping and you know they're yelling at him? I don't know. No. Yeah. Uh, a lot of pirates were clutch last year. That's weird. <laughs> Another knock uh, on clutch, probably. Also, a knock on the pirates if that's how they looked when they were clutch. Yeah, that uh, <laughs> that's true. Sorry, sorry, pirates. Sorry. sorry. Um, <laughs> any case, I, I think uh, uh, it's harder to figure stuff out. And on the hitting side, like uh, back to my Conforto idea, uh, there's still asterisks with Conforto. And then, like, if it is any worse than Conforto, like Mitch Haniger, like you know, I talked with Mitch Haniger recently, and he was talking about you know, hey, I'd I'd love to have my my masseuse, my masseuse, and my my massage therapist, and my you know my rehabilitation therapist, and all that stuff. Um, you know, coming to my house right now. So yes, he okay. By the way, like he's been through some stuff. Yeah, you know, he said this last thing. Um, he said this last thing fixed it. That he's you know th- he finally feels better, uh, and he feels like he finally got at whatever it was that was bugging him. Uh, but the whatever it was that was bugging him has been pretty raucous, dude. I mean, 
I think he has. What did he do? He fractured his testicles. Ruptured. He ruptured one. Well, at least one. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if it was both, but I mean, he said that was the worst thing that ever happened to him. I have a hard time imagining worse, worse injuries <laughs> yeah. you can suffer playing sports like that. I mean, that's. Like, not extreme sports, anyway. You do extreme sports. Maybe you can add another whole category. But, yeah, when that news came by, and other players have had this, like, catchers get hit a lot, right? A foul tip bounces off the ground, just catches Ugh. them the right way. And, uh, yeah, you hear well, like, they torsion. Wear protection. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you get you hit just right, though. It might not. <laughs> it, 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 might, it might save you from more damage, but you're, you're, still, you're still in trouble. Yeah, that's true. It's just hard to like, I think every group that we identify, we're like, oh, these people should be valued higher. We still have questions like, oh, Jesus Lazardo should be valued higher. And that one seems like the easiest. Like Lazardo, uh, uh, Puck, Gore, uh, maybe Paddock, but, you know, young pitchers that you're not sure they had 200 innings in them. They don't have to have the 200 innings. In them. That's great. But you still might find them coming out of games early and losing wins that way. Uh, injured players, yeah, great. They have more time to get ready. It just does Justin Verlander actually have everybody he needs to get ready? You know, does he is he getting the best care that he can be getting right now? Um, I like James Paxton because he's throwing before, like he seems like he was past the whole like I need a bunch of specialists working on me, and now he's throwing already. So he seems like he's ready to go. Um, so maybe maybe there's certain cases where you're like this seems like an un- unquestionable good like Conforto and, and, and Paxton, but um, it's hard to, and there may be something to this. Uh, maybe the, the, maybe you should invest in the very best relievers, but you know, just looking at the reliever pool, I'm not super excited about the best relievers. I mean, I think Chapman is, is, is fine. It's, you know, at least for another year or two, but at some point he's going to lose a tick and, and have a fairly amount of drop off. I don't know. Did you see that picture of Chapman? No, but there was a picture of Chapman going around. Oh, my God. Dude, his arms look like Mark McGuire's. Is he just lifting weights every day? Like, I don't know, at home? dude. He looks bigger than I've ever... I don't know if it was like the, the way the picture was taken, but there's this picture of, of him out there where he just... He looks like he looks like his bicep is bigger than my head. All right, so I'll, I'll be checking this out momentarily. I think maybe uh, Will Carroll, the injury ex- expert, tweeted, tweeted out. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Chapman, I think, is safe. Osuna has a very low strikeout rates for a closer. Um, and I feel like that could be meaningful at some point. Liam Hendricks is a total pop-up. Brad Hand lost velocity already. I think we're already out of the like sure things. Yeah, that group is still only like seven or eight, and I'm seeing this picture of Chapman. Yeah, he he, he looks like an NFL player. Yeah, his arms are. It's he, he has linebacker arms now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the funny thing though about something like Instagram, and this is this is something that comes up when workout videos pop up. Also, it, it, it's that you don't see other things to compare it to from the same player, like. I don't recall seeing Aroldis Chapman sitting around in a tank top prior to right now. So <laughs> yeah. in my head, I'm like, wow, he's jacked. And it's like, well, maybe he's always looked like this and he's always wearing sleeves and you can't tell. Like, <laughs> I, I think he looks a little bigger than normal. It, he's, it certainly seems like he has added muscle uh, at this point. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, I think there's fewer, you know, sure things. If it was like a, a nicer collection of reliever arms at the top, I might say, hey, um, like maybe it's a good year to get two elite arms, uh, two elite relief arms, and avoid some of the injury, and then just get a bunch of quantity on the pitching side. But uh, unless you get Chapman and Osuna, like you know, I don't know. Yeah, the other wrinkle here, uh, I brought this up on on the show on on Monday that I did with Matt Medica was just that. With Corey Knable being near the end of his recovery from Tommy John, I'm kind of curious to see how the Brewers handle him and how that impacts Josh Hader with regard to save opportunities. We talked about Hader on the reliever episode. He could still be a very valuable fantasy pitcher, even with a significantly reduced number of saves. But uh, that one... When it comes to a snake draft, especially like choosing Josh Hader in the fourth round, where his ADP has been, is something that I'm having a really difficult time doing. I'm much more likely to do it in an auction where I've got a lot more control uh, over the combination of players, you know, that I put together. It's just still kind of baffles me that there are players like that who are not format dependent in terms of like daily versus weekly, but who are format dependent in terms of draft versus auction and your willingness to get them. It's the the Fernando Tatis. Avi Baez problem just applied, I guess, uh, to another player. Hater, Hater, good, good example. Yes, uh, I should have uh, thought of Hater. I do think that um, uh, there is some uh, risk there in terms of what you're talking about, but um, maybe it's the year to kind of be interesting to to go, you know, Bueller. Hater chat like Bueller Chapman hater. Go yeah, just go a little more aggressive stuff. with the early closers. I can yeah, see that being the way to go. Maybe. I'm just I'm not gonna push up the, the back end closers, man. <laughs> well, it doesn't have to be hater in, in particular either. It, it could be I think it has to be. I mean it, it has to be the only three that I the, who who am I missing? Who I, the only three that I really that I really think are kind of Bulletproof in a way, or, or Chapman hater, and um, and maybe Osuna. But Yates isn't in that group for you. I put Yates and Hendricks in a group which is like, hey, everything looks great, but where were they like two years ago? You know what I mean? Right. And how quickly could it fade on them? It, can it fade as quickly as it, as the elite skills kind of popped up? Yeah, and. As much as I pretend to know these things, you know, for a living, <laughs> uh, in in reliever situations, uh, you're you have to admit it's uh, it's harder to pro- project them year to year. And something like I think something like two thirds, I mean, or was it like what was it like forty or fifty percent of them lost their jobs? I think uh, Jeff Zimmerman had some number for last year. Yeah, the, the rate the rate is usually between forty and fifty percent. I think that's been pretty consistent for a while. I think that's something Ron Chandler used to uh, put in the forecaster years ago. It's probably still in the beginning of the abstract. I'm sure they update that every year. I got to get back into the forecaster. I got more time to dig in, so I should probably take advantage of that. Uh, but I think this is a question we're going to put out to our listeners. I'll I'll put it out as a poll from the Athletic Fantasy account. Are you going to draft closers? earlier this season top end closers earlier uh, i'll put that out probably uh, later today after the episode goes up on on uh, itunes and everywhere else 
Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. They help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula is developed by scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You could save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter the promo code RATES at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com. Enter the promo code RATES for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code RATES. All right, you know, we had a few questions come in this week. Uh, the first one comes from Isaac. It's about ranking teams for talent development. He writes, you dudes have mentioned the circle of trust with respect to some organizations and how they handle pitchers. Also, I believe the new hitting coach in Miami is the guy who was recently the Bomba Whisperer in Minnesota. It's, uh, yeah, James Rousen, who I think uh, our friend Nana DeFino has uh, has really latched on to. He's, he's all in on the Marlins. Um, certainly interesting to have a new hitting coach there, and the fences have come in. In terms of prospects, the Dodgers always seem to get it right, while, say, the Phillies don't. Have you ever endeavored to rank the teams in terms of how coaching impacts hitting and pitching and or how much you trust organizations to develop their prospects? Thanks, Isaac. Have you ever tried to do that, you know? I have in my head. I don't know the value of doing it on paper because it would just be so subjective. I'm not in those organizations. And when... I get a look in. It's always a highly curated look in that's designed to make them look good. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to be aware that like now that this is my beat, that player development is one of my beats that, that people know that they want to look good in my eyes. Um, So that's uh, something, you know, I even uh, discovered recently that, uh, someone that I'd quoted uh, probably hadn't told me the truth in that quote. So, um, you know, so now I'm even getting that second level stuff where people are telling me that other people are lying to me. <laughs> so, awesome, right? To, to not get the truth. That's that's fun. Yeah. Uh, don't worry. My reporting is still good. It's, it's a minor quote in a, in a, in a recent piece. But, um, you know, one thing I would say is that some of it bubbles to the top and some of it gets corroborated even kind of grudgingly from other places. So the gold standard are the Dodgers and the Yankees, despite the Sonny Gray piece and despite maybe some small failings when it comes to uh, their pitching coaching and some communication between certain departments um, at the Yankees. I would say that at least in terms of resources, manpower, you know, dedicated uh, researchers, um, findings that they've had, being in front of the curve on certain things. I mean, a lot of the things that we see in today's game have been created by the Yankees and Dodgers. If you think about the super bullpen, the the Yankees were there first. If you think about using um, high spin fastballs, 
and using them less often and using them more often as a whiff pitch. That's that was the Yankees. Um, if you think about the combination of high spin, high fastballs, and uh, high spin, low breaking balls, that's the Astros and the Dodgers. So let me throw the Astros in there too. So Astros, Dodgers, and Yankees, they're the ones that are out in front in terms of finding things, researching things, changing things in their organization, making wholesale changes, and implementing these best practices with their minor leaguers to get the most out of them. So I would say that's the gold standard. That's the gold level, the uh, the five-star tier. Um, it gets a little bit harder after that. Um, the Twins seem to be very good at pitching. They were very good at hitting. Um, you know, I trust the Twins... Uh, pitching coaches and some of the people they have there. Josh Kalk uh, is there. Um, you know, they had Jeremy Hefner. They've made some really good strides with uh, older, with uh, veteran pitchers, and they developed Jose Barrios. So, like, they, I think the Twins on the pitching side are good. And then with Ralston on the hitting side, um, I think that, I think you have to, they lead the league in launch angle since we started tracking launch angle. So, um, I think that's uh, a meaningful thing. So let's put the Twins in the next tier, if not the top tier. Um, you know, I liked what I saw in Mariners camp, the things that they talk about. Um, you know, I like uh, what I hear out of the Reds um, in terms of pitching, at least. Um, you know, they've done some great things uh, with Derek Johnson alone. And then they added to that by basically hiring all of Driveline to be their minor league guys. So that has to be good. Um, on the hitting side, I, do, I just I, I don't know as much, but I do know that um, Donnie, hmm, maybe it's Donnie. Let me see here. The guy who got hired away from the Reds to be a hitting coach on the Giants. Um, I've heard uh, good things about him. Donnie Ecker, yeah, that's who I thought it was. So I heard Donnie Ecker was a, a was a really sort of forward thinking uh, hitting coach for the Reds. So um, it's possible they're good on the red on the hitting side too. I would say the Phillies are really good on the hitting side. Uh, they've got great coaches up and down. Jason Ochard is a great hitting coordinator. I would say that they're behind on the pitching side, and I think that flows from what you've seen from their major league pitching coaching and their minor league pitching coaching. Uh, so they're, they're behind there. They get an uneven grade. Um, you know, I don't, you know, yes, Rosen going to the Marlins is fascinating, but I don't know. I just don't know if it works like that. I mean, yes, Derek Johnson went to the Reds and they had one of the biggest turnarounds ever in that starting rotation. But do you think you just hire a hitting coach and it, and the same thing happens like one year over the next, uh, the, the, the research that's out there that says that hitting coaches, um, mostly benefit the way the hitting coaches mostly affect their team is that they're either mostly patient or mostly aggressive. That's a, a piece that Russell Carlton uh, did a bit baseball perspectives a while back. And um, that seems to be the way that you can mostly affect your, your team is by either being more uh, patient or being more aggressive, but uh, maybe it's less binary in the day of launch angle. Uh, maybe there's something there. Uh, what, what uh, the brewers, the brewers are, Teched and data teched up and data up uh, in the minor leagues, and they used to have Derek Johnson. They seem to have a really good eye for for coaches. I'm gonna have to put the Brewers there with the Twins. Um, do you think of somebody that I'm missing? That no, I think that's a really percolates? strong list. That's that's how I would generally have them sorted out too. I, I think the 
the other end of the question or the other end of the spectrum is just like which teams are still lagging the furthest behind just because we didn't mention them here doesn't mean they're necessarily way behind but the extreme laggards and the orioles i think used to be one i think they've started to change in the last year plus now where they're probably at least heading in the right direction whereas maybe previously they weren't really moving in any direction i think the same would be said for the pirates i think uh some of the things i heard from nick pollock pitcher list uh, just from you know, changes to Joe Musgrove and some of the approaches they have with their pitching now are very different post Ray Searage and post Neil Huntington's front office mm-hmm. now with Ben Charrington at it the can helm of the organization. Fast too is another thing. Yeah. So as you know, think about the Pirates before they were data darlings, you know? And then all of a sudden they lost it. And now they've got a whole new team in. What if they, you know, get back into the the top, you know, top ten just by hiring the right people? Um, yeah, I think you still need. Teams. I mean, you still need talent, though. Like you, you kind of alluded to this with the Marlins. Like bringing in James Rousen's good, but if your hitters to their core just don't have yeah. enough talent, like if you're going to make bad make hitters a little contact, better, then Brinson can't make enough contact. Right. Yeah. At a certain point. Now they they do have some really interesting tooled up players like Lewis Brinson when he does make contact actually can hit the ball pretty hard when he's healthy so yeah it's, pretty and interesting. it's harder to talk crap on on an organization because then somebody will say oh but what about this coach or and you'd be like well I have respect for that coach but are they being listened to like I I I and also like the White Sox are really interesting because I would say that they are not at the forefront of anything <laughs> and they have a lot of talent they have a lot of talent and they've developed a lot of hitters so they must be doing something right on the hitting side but like you know uh it's not it's not being done the way that you know uh, the sort of most forward thinking people think it should be done or you know with the with the with the benefit of the most uh you know best research that's out there uh it, it's being done in a more old school manner so uh, it can still work in an old school manner, so the White Sox are showing us that. But um, yeah, I I, uh, I wonder about the White Sox. Um, who else? I the the Royals have made a lot of news uh, in terms of who they've hired and what and what they're doing. Um, I have yet to see you know changes on the major league level, and yet and and they also went and drafted uh, Daniel Lynch, who is kind of just has an old school arsenal as a kind of a sinker slider guy, you know, um, where we're kind of moving more towards four seamers. So, um, I think there might be some disconnect, uh, in Kansas city. Um, let me look at some, let me I, I like what the Rangers have been doing with veteran pitching the last couple of off seasons. We've mentioned that before. I mean, the success of Mike minor and Lance Lynn in particular makes me, start to trust them a bit more as they, they take shots, right? So the fact that they added Kyle Gibson and Jordan Lyles, to me, makes me a little more interested in those two guys than I might have been had they gone to an organization without similar success stories in the last couple yeah. of seasons. I've got one for you. The Rockies. As far as just not having anything figured out? they A, they should be way more innovative than they are. Like they should be the rays of the NL. Oh yeah, we we did a pot about them. Like if if we were running the Rockies, they should just be completely different. They should be a a laboratory organization. Yeah, 
They've got more to crap to deal with than anyone. Um, and then and then they do weird things like um, they 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 highlight ground balls because you know they think that they you got they got to worry about fly balls in that outfield and and babips and home runs and all that stuff. Yeah, okay, good. But one of the ways to like really screw yourself up is to throw four seamers low in the zone, and they throw more four seamers low in the zone than anybody. Yeah, they got to stop that. They got to stop that. <laughs> Um, and they shouldn't be forcing sinkers on people and, uh, you know, just signing Chichi Gonzalez was just kind of hilarious to me. Uh, that was a kind of a Rockies moment. Um, who else? Uh, the, the Tigers, uh, don't seem to be doing much innovative in terms of an organization, uh, in terms of gameplay on the field and stuff like that. But, you know, I've talked to Matt Boyd a lot when I talked to Matt Boyd, about the coaches he works with and the things they talk about, he says, no, he's right at home at driveline and he's right at home in, in Detroit. So um, maybe that, maybe the, the Tigers is more just a question of, of talent than it is coaching. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, and that's kind of a reflection of how they've gone about their rebuild. And they have a lot riding on the health of that group of young pitchers. If If that group stays healthy, then their outcome is positive sooner rather than later but if that group doesn't stay healthy we've talked about their their lack of upper level position player depth in the minors and that is a huge issue for them like they they seem like they got one foot going in the right direction but the other foot is just kind of bebopping around not really moving in any direction and the last one might be surprising to people uh but the a's um I think the A's are brilliant at acquiring talent. I think the A's are brilliant at knowing which prospects to fade, which prospects to trade away. I think they have a really good strategy in terms of building a high variance kind of 84 win team. And in the, in the years when they win 78, they trade everyone away and the years when they win 95 the, you know they they add right they but they, a, so they're they're like elite in the front office in terms of managing the roster but they're very poor when it comes to using tech to maximize they just development. don't do it and like chapman has figured out chapman and olsen have figured out a way to to get good uh simeon was kind of a player acquisition uh, uh win that just happened to be you know, the most, um, like he has probably the best makeup in the game. And so he just got the most out of his skill set. Uh, but you know, uh, in terms of like develop drafting and developing a guy all the way to the top in terms of just what I know of, you know, what, what their process is like. Um, and, uh, they're just, they just don't invest. They don't use money to invest in tech and data in the same way that other teams do. But they do seem to have good coaching, though, at the big league level. So it's it's just a strange... Well, they've cycled through their, their pitching and hitting coaches pretty fast. I don't I don't think they've they've found a guy that that is amazing. I also no, they've know... Had, they've had Wash as their bench coach for a while. Yeah. And a lot of stability with Bob gone. Melvin. Yeah, Melvin is 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 great, but I think what Melvin is so great at is he's like a steady ship guy uh, who the players love and who communicates well. 
And so nobody feels slighted when they lose a role or when they turn into a halftime player or something. They, I feel like he's somehow he's the guy who's willing to interact with them. Whereas the front office, like Billy Bean, doesn't want to be down there telling them they got cut or whatever. Melvin is the guy who can tell you some bad news and make you feel good about it. Um, so you know, I think Melvin is great, but I don't think he's necessarily telling people to tweak their swings or do this or do that. Um, and so. You know, in terms of coaching, they've cycled through coaches, um, you know, and I and I like uh, their current pitching coach, Emer- Scott Emerson, but he's, um, you know, our conversations have been, you know, about why uh, the sinker shouldn't be um, dropped as much as it has been, you know, which is a funny thing to say because most of the, uh, most of the advanced front offices are thinking that the sinker uh, that only like one or two guys on your team should have really be throwing a sinker. Um, anyway, I just think it's interesting when it comes to the A's that they've still had success with the players they've gotten. Oh, here's a, a an anecdote uh, that fits into a piece that I've been researching for a while. Uh, a lot of the A's use an outside source uh, for their game day analytics. That's interesting. It's really interesting, actually. Like, I, how many teams have players doing that? I only know through this outside source that, like, I'm profiling. Um, you know, kind of, I have a sense of who his uh, who his players are, but they mostly have to do with the A's. I mean, he's based out here, so that could be it. But um, it's they're mostly A's, so. Um, I don't know. I've seen the A's game day analytics package, and it seems fine. But um, we even had like some interesting stuff about the umpires that I hadn't seen on other ones. Where like had like the umpires' pets names, <laughs> so they could just like make you conversation with the umpires yeah, and, and get bad. the umpires on their side. Yeah, it like, taps spike? into a, a psychological element there. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, I, it seems fine, but uh, I wouldn't also wouldn't be surprised if like I haven't I don't think I have I've seen an iPad for every A's player. That's not the kind of uh, that's not the kind of outlay they make. You know, that's not the kind of expense they make. Yeah, you go to the Giants clubhouse and every single player has their own iPad and it's got a charging station in their oversized locker that swivels to the left and has a nice, you know what I'm saying? It has a yes, real it, nice, like plush office chair sitting in front of it. Yeah. That's, that's what it's like in, in, in San Francisco, but in Oakland, it's a crappy chair and a tiny <laughs> the folding chair with a little bit of cushion on it. Yes, exactly. In front of like a, just a real old school locker. No, nobody gets it. There's like one iPad. They all share kind of deal. So, um, I you know the A's still have a lot of great teams, so I'm not I, I can't poo poo them generally, and that's another thing. That's another lesson for us trying to uh, chase after this and be like, oh, you know, uh, the Brewers are bulletproof because they do amazing things uh, with their their tech and their data and their minor league system. They have a they built a they built a lab and they've they, they've outdone their uh, projections for like three straight years, and maybe this isn't the year for the Brewers, you know. Yeah, well, if they have one down year, are people still going to hold them in the same high regard? I think that's the other side of this, too. Like, are they just running really hot right now with, with a good process that maybe isn't necessarily a great one? This is just an open question, not me speculating to the quality, just kind of saying, I was hey. a little surprised they signed Christian Yelich to that deal. Um, it's a lot yeah, of money. It's a lot of money for a team that 
they're know, following their, their, their a bit low. it's their same blueprint they follow with Braun though. Like it, yeah, it really is. So I, that's I think funny that because to it's a totally it. new front office. Yeah, but ownership overlapped that deal. Oh, so they they think they've found a, a face of the franchise. I think so. I, I think Yelich has a, a good relationship with Mark Atanasio's son, Mike. I think he's got a couple sons, but I think Mike Atanasio is the one who works with the California Strong Charity that Yelich and wow. Braun and, uh, and Mike Moustakis all do. And I think Jared Goff's the other famous athlete who's a part of it. But anyway, I, I think I think there's, there's, there's like, there was mutual interest on both sides. And everything I've heard and read about it, like Yelich likes playing in Milwaukee and ownership really wanted him to be the face of the franchise since right. Braun's probably you know retiring at the end of the season. The highest paid position player, uh, you know, I actually mentioned Ryan Braun on the radio the other day as a, as a secret tragedy if we don't have a season. Um, it would be kind of sad that this face of the franchise had played his last game as a brewer and didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it would be one of those things that you didn't think about it all at the time, but then you realize yeah. later, like, oh, well, that that was it. It was a year earlier uh, than we expected. Thanks a lot for the question, Isaac. A lot of interesting stuff for us to explore with that. Uh, we're going to save a few of the other questions for Thursday's episode. Please keep sending questions in, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you want to email us, just spell out the word and if you send us an email. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. We've got a 90-day trial going on at The Athletic right now, so if you're not sure about a subscription, be sure to check that out. If you want to get 40% off a subscription, go to theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That is going to wrap things up for this episode. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. 